coming up on crossing the lane lines. Since May of this year, various sports bodies have spoken out about the need to address systemic racism. The NFL, NBA, and even USA Swimming have uttered the phrase, Black Lives Matter. But while this so-called solidarity is going on, where is the surf community? Why have they largely remained silent on the issue of racism and privilege? We'll speak to surfer and coach Rhonda Harper about the lack of diversity in the lineup. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. Since the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Avery at the hands of police and white vigilantes, there have been thousands of protests all over the world forcing those with privilege to face a reckoning with the systemic racism that blacks have had to endure for over 400 years. Influential entertainers, business leaders, and yes, even politicians have had to come to grips with the need for fundamental change with respect to race. The sports world is no different. Executives in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and even USA Swimming seem to have had, at least in the headlines, a come-to-Jesus moment. Many hoisting Black Lives Matter banners and singing Lift Every Voice, the African-American national anthem before sporting events. But what about surfing? Is there even an issue within the surf community regarding racism? I'm sure many listening now think of surfing as the Beach Boys, Endless Summer, and Luau's on a tropical beach where everyone is chill and gets along. But sadly, this is far from true. As our guest today was recently quoted by the Associated Press as saying, quote, there's a lack of awareness and empathy when these things happen. I have a lot of white surf friends who don't get it or are so privileged that they don't have to mourn the loss of black life. They're talking about waves, being beautiful, and there being too much negativity in the world, close quote. Rhonda Harper is a veteran of the U.S. Coast Guard an elite surfer, celebrity designer, by the way, Eddie Murphy is one of her clients, a journalist, and the founder of Black Girl Surf, a nonprofit that supports young women whose career goals are competing in professional surfing. Rhonda Harper, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so honored to be here to speak with you. Rhonda, let's start from the beginning. How did you get involved with surfing? What drove you, a young woman from the Midwest, to take up the sport? Uh, I'm from Kansas City originally, and anybody that knows the Midwest knows how hot it can get in the summer. And it would get so hot that all the kids would just come in the house and just watch television all day long. And uh, it, it, because we had air conditioning, that all, it always helps. But during the summer months, there was, uh, in the 70s, when I grew up, there was always uh, beach blanket bingo, how to stuff a wild bikini, Gidget, um, Muscle Beach Party, and those movies would always come on. Now, if you're growing up in the 70s, you obviously know who Stevie Wonder is. He was just mega famous, and he was right in the middle of civil rights at that, at that moment. And little Stevie Wonder made his debut on Muscle Beach Party. And there was so much animosity in our social environment that there was very rare occasions where you got to see white people um, being nice, 
joyous, having fun, you know, feeling free, dancing to music. You, you rarely saw that. And so these movies were captivating, one, because you saw a different side of, of, of white life, but also Little Stevie was, was in Muffle Beach Party, and that was my connection. And I, as soon as I saw him, I knew instantly that I could do that. If Little Stevie can do that, I can do that. Like, I can be in these movies. I could have this much fun. I could hang around with white people, and everything would be okay. Um, and that never left my mind. I, I think the first time I saw one of those movies, I was seven years old. I was instantaneously cooked on that beach life. And then my parents moved on a government transfer to California, and before my par- and I was 10. And before my mom even took us to, to Disneyland, she took us to the beach in Santa Cruz. And that was the first time I'd ever laid eyes on the ocean. And, of course, there was surfaces in the water in Santa Cruz because that's one of the very first place Duke Hanamuku came when he came to, from Hawaii. He surfed in Santa Cruz first. And so there it is in real life. You can see it. You can, you can feel it. You, you're there at the beach, and there's an energy that comes from the ocean. There's an energy that comes from being on the beach that's electric, and you feel it at that time. Either you're never going back to the beach again because you don't like sand, you don't like the waves, you don't like that environment, or you become instantaneously in love with it and, and you lock on. And, I mean, I think maybe three weeks later I ended up going to Disneyland. Nothing had could compare to that trip to the beach with my mom. And so, like, when I was about 15, I was sent to Hawaii. Uh, I got grounded, supposedly, and sent to go live with my sister. And... Um, she lived in a resort on the North Shore of Hawaii. And there's only three things you can do in Hawaii. Which I had a pool in my backyard, which wasn't a big deal, and I was on a swim team. And uh, you could golf, and I was, because I was in a resort, um, you know, I was a little bit too young for that. That's kind of like later on in your years, not for a 15-year-old kid. And the third thing that you could do was surf. And it was right there in my backyard, 30 seconds from, from my front door. And so I instantly, I would go to the hotel every single day and just stare out in the ocean at these surfers. That, I mean, there wasn't a lot of them because it was, it was a resort, so it was closed off, and the locals couldn't come um, at that time. The locals weren't allowed to, to surf that particular point. And so it was almost like, you know, having your own private surf contest in your backyard. And just so happens that that particular summer I, I arrived at the same time, they were filming uh, Magnum P.I., and the crew members were out surfing, and I, I guess one of them had caught me off guard. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was daydreaming about a wave, but I'm not really sure, and he came up and he kicked my shoe, my new flow hole, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to go tandem, and I said, yeah, of course, like, I'm, I, I knew it had something to do with surfing, but I wasn't really sure what tandem actually was, what it, what it meant or what it entailed. And so as I was walking to the beach, he explained it to me. And he said, listen, we're going to go. We're going to get on this board together. You're going to get in the front. I'm going to get in the back. We're going to paddle. I'm going to grab the back of your bikini. And, and when, I, when, when, we, when I pull you up, we're both going to stand up and we're going to ride this wave into the shore. And that probably lasted about 30 seconds because once the board actually caught 
you know, I got all excited and, and he pulls me up and, and I'm not, you know, probably that one instruction instruction that I didn't receive was, you know, there's a certain stance you have to stand on the board. And uh, I went one way and he went the other way and I came up without a top and he came up embarrassed. I said I was never surfing again. I got home uh, like a couple of days later, one of my, one of my friends, from from school, a kid at school um, had a surfboard that he he wanted to sell. It was like fifty bucks, wasn't a big deal. Um, and I was like, yeah. He was like, he wanted. I was like, yeah. I already knew I wasn't ever going to surf in front of anybody again, but because um, that was just you know, too embarrassing for a fifteen-year-old kid. Um, so the kid, there was another kid, and he couldn't afford the board, and he was going to have to pay for it. And I felt bad, so I went ahead and I said, you know, go ahead and take the board. Well, the guy's dad called me that night, and he was like, well, you know, since you handled that so well, I have another board I'll sell you for $25. And, I, and he's like, do you want it? And I was like, yeah, of course. I didn't know what size it was. I didn't care. Um, I just I, I just had a surfboard. I was going to have my very, my very own surfboard, and I was stoked about that. Um, and so when I saw the board, it was, like, beat up. It had, like, dings and dents, and I, I think the nose was chipped. I'm, I'm pretty sure the nose was chipped off of it, but it still – it was – Still a good board. I say that now, but as a kid, it was brand new. Um, and so I, I would take that board home and throw it underneath the villas in the back of the resort because in the back of where I lived, there was there was condominiums where I lived, but in the back of those condominiums, there were villas that belonged to the hotel, and underneath it had a lattice, and you could climb underneath it. Well, I would throw the board underneath there and just, like, throw leaves or whatever was around on top of it. And then when I get out of school, because my sister already knew that I always spent all of my days at the beach anyway. So she's just like, okay, she's already occupied. I know where she is. At least I know where she is. Um, And it was a gated community, so she didn't really care. And I would take the board out and and then, you know, try to teach myself how to surf. And it took like five days of trial and error. But eventually that fifth day, I got a hold of it, and and I never let it go after that. After that, I was completely hooked. I'm wondering, after you got involved in surfing, did you have any negative experiences? I've heard from many other friends who are people of color that surf that they've had a lot of issues in the lineup and in parking lots with respect to racism. What's been your experience with racism in the surfing community? When was the first time, if any, that you had to confront it in the sport? I didn't realize there was an issue with black people being in the water until I came back to the United States. When you're in Hawaii, everybody's brown or everybody's of color. Um, You know, I I had a couple white friends that were surfers. They had problems. I never had a problem with the water in Hawaii at all. It wasn't until I came home and and I went surfing in Santa Cruz, California, and it was a flat day. I, I always remember this thing. Flat day. And I think it was 1987. And I, and I had uh, my boyfriend at the time was Caucasian. And we, we'd gone out. It was flat when we got there. We decided to go ahead and fly these professional kites. You know, and just have a, you know, a regular beach date. And, and we thought everything was good. And then... um. You have to climb up a cliff. At that time, they have stairs now, but they didn't have stairs then in 87. You have to climb up a cliff in order to get to your car, and then you park your car in this little dusty area across the street. 
And as I was walking across the street, I noticed that there was something wrong with the paint on my car. It looked like it was shiny, but not. It was a brand new 300 GX. And so it had this shiny but weird, like, texture to it. And I looked at it, like, really looked at it, and it said, go home later on the time. Rent it in wax. That was the very first time, even being in Santa Cruz, where I experienced racism. But that whole localized surf mentality, um, that was the very first time I experienced it. And then I, I didn't go back to Santa Cruz. And, and it's funny because I, I'll go to that spot now, you know, as as an adult. And I remember that day. But everything has changed so much, as uh, even physically, that you can't recognize that spot. But I won't even surf in that area. I go, just still in Santa Cruz, I'll go south of Santa Cruz, almost in the border town. Well, it's, it's almost Watsonville, like right at the edge of Santa Cruz. And I'll, you know, the, the stretch of beach is just endless. And I'll go away from the main crowd and I'll go down the beach and I'll surf now, even to this day. That's what I do. And if I get out of the car, and I, <laughs> I, I had Haji Sam with me one day, and she said, "Where do you surf?" And I pointed, and I mean, it was way down the beach, and there were people like right in front of us. I mean, I literally could have just, you know, ran down the hill and and surfed there. But that's having that experience of, of, and not having it just once, but even moving to San Diego right after this incident. And I moved that same year and went to San Diego, and then it's experienced it again. Um, you you start to feel like this isn't your you, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Somebody's telling you that this isn't where you're supposed to be. As I mentioned in my introduction, there is this clean cut image of the surf community that the public sees. Now, since May of this year, when mass protests began, various sports groups came out in support for the movement for Black Lives. In fact, even the surf community has done several paddle outs honoring George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others who've lost their lives at the hands of police. Now, I want to ask you two questions. First, do you feel that white surfers are starting to understand what black people have to endure on a daily basis? And secondly, is this a movement or a moment in the surfing community? Okay, first question. I think that because of the paddle outs, there's been a day of reckoning. Since the paddle outs, I've seen a lot of movement in in within the industry. Whether it's genuine or not, there is movement, right? There's people being picked up as sponsors. You know, sponsors I had to like a choice where I had no sponsors. I had to choose between four major brands just for Black Girl Surf. So there is movement. Is it a diversity grab? Is it genuine or is it a diversity grab? That remains to be seen because this is what I always tell people. Surf season is between March and September, right? And whatever news you get in, and this is just how it's been since forever, Whatever whatever news you can get in in those short months, you're going to get it all. You're getting it all right then. 
if you last that next summer to the next summer, then then there's hope, right? If you don't last, if you if you don't last past the surf season, then you know it was a trend. That's still we're still in September, so it remains to be seen. Tyler Wright just did a uh, just nailed before her heat uh, last weekend um, for Black Lives Matter made a statement and she took a hit. I mean, I took a hit when I did the paddle outs, but she, and I, I I've taken hits since I started this, but Tyler Wright was taking hits that that I had never. I already knew. I mean, I knew, right? So there's two things that can happen to Tyler's career. Either she can get boosted up to heroine status or she loses all her sponsors and this is the end of her career because nobody wants to touch her now because she has made the white surf community so uh, upset that, you know, nobody's going to buy that product. Everybody's going to start boycotting. People are going to stop subscribing to surf magazines. People are going to stop surfing or they're going to stop subscribing to to surf uh, forecasting. You won't know until the next surf season. You you literally won't because I'm one of these people in my job. I work 365 days a year just on surfing. So even when the surf season is off, I'm still in high gear, still working on, on the next thing. Is it, if it's a trend, it'll be out before Christmas. Um, and and then we'll see what happens. What new cause? And I I see it already. I see, I see the the next. I can see the next trend now. It's it's already starting to happen. So I I I want to say that it's genuine. Um, the surf media put out a story. Inertia put out a story the other day. Um, and it was about um, if you if you don't if you're not on Tyler Wright's side. You're on the wrong side of history. And my question to them is, you're the surf media. You've been on the wrong side of history for so long, and now you're saying because Tyler Wright said something that now you're going to be on the right side of history? If they were on the right side of history prior to this, we wouldn't even be having diversity grabs. We wouldn't have this kind of, um, well, this happened because George Floyd died. And this is exactly the result of George Floyd died. There's no other... There's no other explanation. There is none. Genuine none. Even WSL. I had gone to WSL a year prior to, to the announcement that they made um, in June with the paddle out. I had gone to them and asked them, what exactly are you going to do in the communities? What exactly or how are you going to give access to kids that don't have access? What are you going to actively do in the community to solve this diversity representation problem that you have? Right, and they sat on it, and then the paddle outs came, and then surfing for everyone came. Right, that was their statement: surfing for everyone. So my thing was, okay, I'm still sitting in Senegal. I'm going home in nine days. I'm going to hold you to task. What is it exactly? Because you had bullet points of what you were going to do. What actively are you doing on this list of bullet points? Because they were the bullet points that I gave them. What are you actually doing besides doing diversity hires? Right within the within the within the structure and then having to lay those those people off because we're in a COVID season. What are you actually doing to help? Because one of the things that I asked for, one of the one of the one of the things I think is reasonable is that you grant access to a certain amount of surfers who 
would never have this opportunity to be on the world tour. They don't even know where they're going to be next year, right, because of COVID. All the beaches are closed down. The beaches here are closed down. So, of course, our club is closed down. What are you going to do as a profession next year? How are you going to fix this situation where you have African surfers who can't afford to enter contests on their own continent? What are you going to do? You're going to allow sponsorship. You're going to allow sponsorship within the WSL. Are you going to coax sponsors into sponsoring these these entities? I mean, what is it actively that you're going to do? So that's the question that I have when I go back home. So the question is: is it a, the the answer to the question? Both questions is it'll it remains to be seen because this is so new for them. Finally, can you talk about the challenges that you're facing to try and help young women get an opportunity to become elite surfers, and how can people support your work? So the challenges that we have, especially here in West Africa, and I think it's just across the board now, excuse that pun, is that the equipment for what you want to do is so expensive, right? Finding a shaper who is going to work with you and uh, like right now, for instance, I'm in Senegal. When I got here, there were all the girls had boards, and they were all in disrepair. And I've been here for eight months, and I've watched those boards deteriorate into nothing. So now my girls aren't even surfing on the fiberglass boards that we're used to or the epoxy boards that we're used to seeing in contests. They're actually having to revert back to foam boards because here in Senegal, the only thing they have is decathlon, and um, and the 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 epoxy boards are still not performance ready. But you can get on a soft top and 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 try to hone in on your balance skills and and all of that until I can get back to the United States and get some donated boards. Um, so that's one of the challenges. The other challenges would be wetsuits, leashes, wax. Um, just accessories that you need. It's like if you're a carpenter, you need a screwdriver, you need a hammer, you need a drill, you need all these things. And these things are so expensive for like a West African surfer or even a surfer that's in, you know, Los Angeles living in, you know, Watts or, or, or Compton. It's still going to be this exact same same issue. Um, depending on where your country is, for this particular country, it's the challenge is, a pay, it, when you're in a patriarchal system, right? So you have all of these girls who have dreams. They want to come become professional surfers, and then you have all of these men that say, no, we're men, and you guys shouldn't be doing that stuff. And so those, those challenges, those cultural challenges kind of clash, especially with the old generation and the new generation who just doesn't understand this whole new thing. Uh, they're starting to now because we're we're showing up more on television now here, but um, – before, you know, Haji had a hard time when she started surfing out um, out in her front yard. I mean, literally, her her where Haji lives is where surf um, where Endless Summer was filmed. And then anybody that is in the surf community knows exactly what Endless Summer is. It is the um, Ten Commandments of surfing. It's the it's the one movie every surfer is you know, I've seen. And the first place they land is the car. And they land in, in Gore. 
and it's the same one that Haji practices on, the same one she caught urchins in the knee in yesterday and now healing. And um, I'm looking out the window at my apartment, and I'm looking at the hotel that these guys, um, when they came here to start the whole surfing revolution in the 60s, the hotel, I'm looking at it right now as I'm speaking to you. Outside of my bedroom window is the same wave that they surfed on. So this generation, this is what's going on right now in Senegal is the new in the summer. This is how you remake a movie to have it feel genuine and, and true to character. This is actually what we're living right now in this space and this time is is the actual in the summer. And and that's just there's only there's no other way to even explain it. And if that if that trademark wasn't taken, I'd probably write a book called The New Endless Summer because this is this is really what what needs to be shown, what needs to be seen, what needs to be showcased, what needs to be honed, what needs to be praised, and what needs to be amplified is this area right here where I am, this spot right now where I'm at. So how can you get in touch with me? How can you help? We set up a GoFundMe, but we just found out that GoFundMe is changing format, so we don't have a fundraiser entity per se. What we do have is a Laud Her campaign going on, and it's Laud Her, L-A-U-D, and then H-E-R, and then the Laud is in brackets. And that campaign, if you can donate any amount or you can um Donate $35, and what you get is a photo of the very first paddle out that we did that started the case, all of this. The very first paddle out photo, and that's the one that we use on all of our flyers, and that's available for like a $35 donation, and that goes straight to these girls. Every dime that we ever don't get donated, it goes straight to the girls. As we have boys, too, on the equal side, but all the donations go for Black Girl Surf, they go to Black Girl Surf. Um, how can you get a hold of me personally? My email address, and I'm always available. My email address is Rhonda, R-H-O-N-D-A, at Black Girl Surf. And I answer all my emails. I answer all my DMs. Uh, and I'm available because I wanted to be that person that I didn't have when I was going through it um, for the world, and, and, it, and it's working out. I mean, people literally will DM me about how to get a screw out of their fan box. And 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 I and I uh, I'm up. I'll take pictures. I'll give them references. Show them the tool they need. Um, I just want to be accessible like that for the world. And we are going to have to leave it there. Our guest has been Rhonda Harper, a former U.S. Coast Guard vet, journalist, elite surfer, celebrity designer, surf coach, and the founder of Black Girls Surf, a nonprofit that supports young women whose career goals are competing in professional surfing and we will have a link to their website. Rhonda Harper, we wish you and your friends and family safety during these uncertain times, and thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, 
or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Naji Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off. Coming up on Crossing the Lane Lines, between 1915 and 1970, nearly 6 million African Americans fled the Jim Crow South in search of a better life in the North. The vast majority found solace along the East Coast and Midwest, but some ventured farther to the sands and sun of California. Today, we'll speak to historian Dr. Allison Rose Jefferson about the Great Migration westward and how some black families, even though racism awaited them, settled along the California coast and built up beachside businesses, leisure spots, and cultural spaces. Stay tuned. <laughs>